starts with a desire planted deep within your heart you pray in faith and wait for God to move but time passes and you wonder did he hear me when I called should I even have prayed that prayer at all you'll never pray a prayer your father will not answer he can't ignore his child's earnest request while you're waiting and believing for what you thought was best trust god if he says no you're still blessed there must be a greater yes there comes a time when childlike faith must graduate to trust trials come and you're convinced you're on your own but the teacher is often silent while we're in the hardest test and he'll answer when it's time with what is best you'll never pray a prayer your father will not answer he can't ignore his child's earnest request so while you're waiting God, if he says no, you're still blessed. There must be a greater yes. Sometimes God will answer just like we pray. Then other times what's on his mind is a better plan, another way, a greater
course of that song reminded me of family. There isn't a prayer that your father doesn't answer. It's good to be in the family. And it's good for Kathleen and me to be in your family as well. So thank you so very, very much. It's just a joy and a pleasure to be with you all today. Last week in the New York Times, on page one, above the fold, there was an article that said that, in essence, that belief in atheism is growing more rapidly than ever before. People are setting, aside, are setting God aside in record numbers. And belief in God and in the Bible are being set aside. Now, does that mean that we will no longer be listened to by the world if they ever did, but rather we are going to be ridiculed, mocked, and scorned. And it's going to take a lot of courage for you who are believers in Christ to share the gospel with the world. We will need a lot of courage. And that is the title of my message today, The Courageous Prophet. And so this morning, I would like to, for us to think of one of the most dramatic, challenging, and remarkable personalities in the Old Testament. And his life is full of important lessons for us. We know him by the name Elijah the Tishbite. And so my title is The Courageous Prophet, or The Courageous Servant. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the Book of First Kings. First Kings chapter 16, and I'm just going to read a few verses. Chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Verse 30. Verse 33, excuse me. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Then move down to chapter 17 and verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. May God bless his word to us. Elijah appears very suddenly and very dramatically on the pages of the Bible as the prophet of crisis times and appears as the obedient servant of God. And just as suddenly as he appears, he disappears in a chariot of fire and whirlwind. He comes and he leaves, gives his message, does his work, and is gone. And Elijah's personal biography is very sparse. 
though it would seem when we read between the lines that he undoubtedly had had a private preparation for so powerful a public ministry. He had not gone to Bible school, no school of the prophets, no seminary, but it's obvious that he was very, very well trained. And Elijah's career must have come about by a personal encounter with God, where he had come to know God intimately and at which time he had received his prophetic call. Elijah was a man of courage. He was a man of faith. He was a man of great, great zeal. And this challenging story of Elijah has led me to study his life and to ask a number of questions. Have you ever wondered why there is so much in Scripture that is biographical? The Bible is full of stories of men and women who are made of the same kind of stuff, you know, that I'm made of. Made of exactly the same thing. And I love the stories of people like Abraham and Moses and Joshua and King David and Daniel and Barnabas and Paul. And I have to say, wow. It makes me want to be like them, but they are already like me. They are like me and you. I hope that I'm looking at a group of Elijahs out there. It's made of the same stuff, of the same passion that, uh, that he had. Maybe I've mentioned this man once before, but uh, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is a man by the name of Barnabas. And he is described in the Greek as the son of Periclesis. And Periclesis means he's the son of encouragement or the son of consolation. And uh, I want to be one that encourages people. Wouldn't you like to be an encourager to the saints of God and to people in general? Be an encourager. Be a Barnabas. And the study of these characters has also left me reproved. If these people could do what they did with what they had, what should I be doing on the basis of what I have? And what do I have? I've been saved a long time. I've been in the household of faith for quite a long while. I've been reading the Bible for quite a long while. I have some good books on my shelf. Several hundred. I used to have a few more, few thousand. I gave maybe a thousand or more away. I have some good friends. And I have a good fellowship here at San Ramon and at my home church, Sun Valley Bible Chapel. And so I have a lot. And if these men in the Old Testament did what they did with what they have, why shouldn't I be doing exploits for God with what I have. Why shouldn't I? The book of James tells us a little bit more about the prophet Elijah, and it describes him as a man who had a nature like ours. That's according to the New American Standard Bible. The NIV calls him a man just like us. And the King James Version says he's a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he is like us. We are like him in all of our frailties, 
in all of our weaknesses, in all of our temptations. And yet we, when we read the pages with regard to Elijah, we find a man who was on fire for God. He had a zeal that overcame. And here was this little old prophet, and here were a whole several hundred prophets of Baal. And he whips them real good, real good, because he was a man of God. And I trust that in this room, again, I'll repeat, we have people who in many respects are very much alike. We're all pretty much alike. And the point I'm making is that we're all like Elijah in many areas of our life. So if we are like Elijah in our weaknesses, perhaps we can be like him in the courage he displayed, in the devotion he had towards God, in the walk he had with God. I trust that all of you will say yes when I say, aren't you glad to be an Elijah? Aren't you glad that you're like Elijah? Elijah also had a great name. Comes in two parts. L, E-L, and the last three letters, J-A-H. L and Yah. And what that means is Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. So at a very significant time in world history, at that point, when Baal worship threatened to extinguish the worship of Jehovah, here comes God's prophet whose name is Jehovah is God. People are against him. People are trying to wipe the name of God out. But here comes Jehovah is God. And I, I just think that's just remarkable. Well, the book of James tells us one thing that the book of 1 Kings omits. Elijah was a man of prayer. And that's a critical part of our challenge as we consider this man's life. And I want to direct your attention to a remarkable episode in the life of Elijah. And I want us to see his courage. And if you still have your Bibles open, just look again at 1 Kings Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now if you look at verse 1, that verse, very carefully, very closely, it, it comes to us with hyperspeed. We have the biography of Elijah given to us in just three or four words. He's a Tishbite from the place called Tishbe in Israel. And he was of the settlers of Gilead. And then all of a sudden we see him in the throne room. He's with King Ahab. He's introduced and now he's with King Ahab. And he brings him a message. He brings him a message. He brings him a message of a dire prophecy. Israel depended upon rain more than perhaps any other country, more than California, actually. Depends on rain. And Elijah prophesies that there's not going to be rain 
for three and a half years. Very, very interesting. And then, all of a sudden, Elijah disappeared. If you look at verse 2, verse 2 says he goes into hiding. And what that tells me is that King Ahab didn't like the prophecy of Elijah. He didn't like it at all. And maybe there was a threat of some sort. I don't know exactly. But Elijah goes into hiding. He gives them the message and then he scrams. He leaves. Uh, it seems like Elijah has brought a message that uh, downgrades Baal because Baal was the god of rain. And Elijah says, it's not going to rain. I don't care about your god of rain. It's not going to rain. Three and a half years. And so anybody who stuck up for Baal, well, here's a confrontation between the messenger of God and what Baal purported to be like. Where does Elijah get such daring and trust and courage and audacity? Uh, you know, we shall never understand or appreciate what Elijah did until we understand the times in which he lived. The nation was on the skids, going downhill. The spiritual horizon was empty. There seemed to be a spirit of do-nothing. And that, unfortunately, also took in some believers. There were 7,000 believers who probably were hiding in caves. They were scared, and they dared not confront Ahab or Baal. You know, they were saying, we don't want to get involved. And chapter 16 of 1 Kings tells us the sad story of the rapid spread of and universal acceptance of idolatry, as we read before in verses 30 and 33. Their problem was idolatry. Our problem in our day is atheism, is a rejection of God. And so it seems like we have a, a group of fools for the person who says there is no God. The Bible calls that person a fool. How will San Ramon survive in this kind of environment? How will Sun Valley survive in this kind of environment? They will be, they will survive by seeing that God is alive. I want you to notice three keys. Three keys that Elijah opens. And I want you to look at, first of all, a key one, chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah was convinced of the reality of Jehovah. Listen to what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. You know what? God is alive. And Elijah believed that. 
And based on that belief, he acted the way he did. Ahab and all of his followers with him thought that they had successfully embalmed and buried the worship of Jehovah. And his, this is where he went wrong. They forgot that a man or a woman overwhelmed by the sense of God's aliveness can make all the difference in a Sun Valley or a San Ramon Valley Bible Church. Jim Gillette, who some of you may know, is a missionary, and much of his work is in Nigeria and Africa. And he wrote recently that two of the highest-ranking Satanists have recently been converted. Two of the highest-ranking Satanists in the country of Nigeria have been converted. He believes that God is alive, and that a God who is alive can confront the Satanists and uh, they must bow the knee. They must bow the knee. And I hope you all remember in the book of Acts, chapter 1, and especially verse 3. Verse 3 says, to these, the apostles, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing or infallible proofs. Jesus is alive, and the apostles needed to be absolutely convinced of this, and nothing else would suffice. Jesus is alive. And Acts chapter 4 and verse 6 tells us that they stood before the same people who had put Jesus to death, and how could they do that? They should have been scared out of their skulls. And if you are preaching to King Ahab, you need to be convinced that the God of Israel lives, that Jesus is alive. You know, the world is not convinced by great and clever arguments, nor is the world overwhelmed by our success stories. The world is convinced only by that which it cannot produce, and that is a revolutionized people who convince that God is alive do great exploits for God. And we will never change society until we change the most important person in that society, the individual. In the world's estimation, it's Friday. You know, the day that Jesus died, the day that Jesus was placed in the tomb and, and the devil is dancing in the streets and the followers of Jesus have all forsaken their leader. And things look pretty dismal. The grave is sealed with a Roman ceiling guarded by 16 Roman soldiers. That may be what it was like on Friday, but you know what? Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. How do you convince the world that Jesus is alive today? And I'd like to submit that we do this by demonstrating that aliveness in our lives. By the obvious, obvious change in our behavior. By demonstrating our love for one another. This is our message to a phony generation. Jesus is alive and he changes lives. 
Now, the second key or truth in Elijah's experience is this. Not only is Elijah convinced of the reality of Jehovah that God is alive, but he is also convinced that he was a servant, a representative of the living God. Notice again in chapter 17, verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. I stand before the living God. And notice that the word stand is in the present tense. When was Elijah standing, ready to go, ready to serve, ready to advance, ready to proclaim God's message? Elijah was standing when he brought God's message to King Ahab. He was standing during the entire time of drought. He was standing during his experience with the widow of Zarephath. He was standing when the brook Cherith dried up. He was standing when he confronted the priests of Baal. That was his calling, and that was his ministry to stand before God, ready to obey his call. And this is what gives dignity to the Christian experience. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13 describes himself and the other apostles in this way. Quote, the scum of the world and the dregs of all things. If you've never read that verse, that's really a remarkable verse. That's 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Can God use that kind of a person? He sure can. He sure can. We know something of what he did through the Apostle Paul. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 says, Paul says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of the wisdom of men, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And God consistently performs the miracle of transforming lives through the preaching of the cross by weak and trembling people. We are personal representatives, ambassadors of the living God. We stand before him. That's exciting. To stand before the creator of all things. Stand before God. And I suggest that we be more involved in the process of giving the only answer to the questions which men are asking And further, we need to be asking, what can I do? What can you do? What can we do in this world? Who, in that article in the New York Times, I don't know whether their statistics are correct in the first place, but even if they are, we stand before the living God, and we're his servants, and he lives, he's alive, and he can transform lives, and there's no atheist that can. It undoubtedly is still true, as in Elijah's time, that God is looking for a man. He's looking for a woman who will become his personal representative. Behind a pulpit? Yes. In a Bible school classroom? Yes. Various forms of Christian work? Yes. But also in, in the home, in offices, in shops in colleges and high school campuses. All these are places where we can serve as our Lord's personal representative. 
In 2 Corinthians, it's a wonderful book. It tells us that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation and that we are ambassadors for Christ. And the text goes on further to say that we as ambassadors are making an appeal on behalf of Christ that people may be reconciled to God. There is an enmity in the world today and people need to be reconciled to each other. In a very real sense, the voice of the representative may be said to be the very voice of the one he represents. The last key or secret is this. Elijah was not only convinced of the reality that Jehovah was alive and that he was a personal representative of God to his generation, but he was also convinced of the resources that were available to him and which are available to us. Most of us have a good commentary on the life of Elijah, and it's called the book of James. As I mentioned before, we are told something here that we know nothing of in 1 Kings. And here it is. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. mentioned that before. And he prayed earnestly. Wasn't fooling around. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Now there's a drought, folks. There's a real drought. The reservoirs were dry, I'm sure. Elijah's courage to confront the king and his generation was the product of his earnest prayer life. Where did Elijah learn to pray like that? Well, back to the Bible, because it tells us. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17, we read this. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you turn not away and serve other gods and worship them. Don't do that. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And now notice, this is what Elijah learned. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. No rain. No rain because there were people who's, who were deceived. Who were deceived by the worship of Baal. And that they did, did turn away. And, that, and it didn't rain for three and a half years because that was God's judgment on people who were deceived and who did turn away. This is what God had said would happen if Israel serviced and worshiped other gods, the heavens would be shut up. There would be no rain. And I think Elijah knew the scriptures. He knew what God had promised. And so Elijah prays according to the promise, and God answered his prayer. What can we do? What resources are available to me in the midst of the ungodliness in our country? What did Elijah have more than what we have? We too have his promises. We too have the word of God. What more do we need? 
And may the Lord help us to appropriate the resources that he has given to us, and especially the resource of prayer. Let me repeat a question I asked earlier. What can we do in this ungodly generation? What resources are available to us here in the superficial Bay Area? How fierce is the opposition we face? Is it anything like that of King Ahab? And when we look at Elijah's resources, we note that Elijah didn't have a single thing that is not available to us. He had the word of God, so do we. He had the promise of prayer, so do we. He was a servant of God, and so can we be. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we too, as Elijah, stand before the living God. And the important thing for us is to believe the promises of God and then to appropriate them in our experience. Lastly, may I say something else about the ambassadorship. I am quoting from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. I beg you, on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I want you to notice the language. I beg you. I beg you. Have you ever begged anybody that they might come to know the Lord? Beg. Beg. That's strong language. And this to me suggests the idea of urgency. There is an urgency in our generation, in our time. It suggests an importance of not missing what God has for us, and that is peace with God. Because to, to be reconciled with God essentially means to have peace with God. And there are a lot of people that don't have peace with God. And so, Paul, the ambassador, the good ambassador, speaking on the behalf of Christ, says, I beg you, be at peace with God. Is there someone here this morning who is not at peace with God? Is there someone here this morning who would like to be at peace with God? This may be that great moment, that great moment of opportunity that God lays before us and uh, tells us, I beg you. If I, am to, if I am as an ambassador speaking the words of Christ when he says, I beg you, this means that Christ himself is saying that. Jesus is saying that. I beg you. Come to peace with God. Be reconciled. Let's pray. Listen, before we pray, if there is someone here who would like to be reconciled with God, 
and would like prayer, maybe a little more information, would you raise your hand? To be at peace with the God of the universe, to be brought into his family, what a great thing. Father in heaven, we thank you for this man, Elijah, and for the example that he has given to us of coming before one of the most wicked kings of all time, maybe worse than a Hitler, maybe worse than a Stalin, worse than many of the tyrants of history, worse than a Nero. And yet, Father, here was your servant that dared to confront him. Lord, help us to be like Elijah. He's a man of like passion, such as we are. Bless this fellowship of your people here. Lord, uh, may you use all of us here in your service as we stand before you. Thank you, Father in heaven. Dismiss us with your blessing now. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.